Welcome to episode 410 with my guest Leanne Kreischer. I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour. Uh, it's about three in the morning here and I was laying in bed. It's the night before Thanksgiving and I'm so excited to wake up and open the gifts. Um, <laughs> I, I was thinking, I feel like I, I, first of all, I can't sleep because knowing that I pushed recording the episode until tomorrow, which is Thanksgiving, uh, is stressing me out. So I'm having trouble sleeping. So I thought, well, why don't you just get up and record, you know, the, the interview portion of this is done already, but I'm at the portion now where I do the pre-interview stuff and the post-interview stuff. And I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. And I'm just sitting in bed <laughs> trying to not come up with something to do, but what is it? It, it often feels like um, when I'm doing the podcast, whatever is the route to take becomes clear for me the day of doing the podcast and when I'm supposed to do it. And And as I was laying in bed, I felt like you are supposed to get up right now and just do these intros and outros, even if you're you know, we're just asleep for two hours. And um, and the thing that kept popping into my mind was I'm kind of tired of doing uh, the, the thing I say in the beginning of every episode that uh, I'm not a therapist. It's not a doctor's office. It's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. And I don't know <laughs> what what to replace that with because I want, I want the first-time listener who is listening to this, to know in the first three minutes, these are my people. And I don't know what it is that I could share about somebody to let them know they're not the only fucked up person. What do I say? Uh, I'm, I'm Paul Gilmartin, and all I want is everybody in the world to love me, but leave me alone until I feel like talking and then drop everything they're doing and come. Uh, do I say, uh, I used to be a TV host and a stand-up comedian. Uh, I cook chicken on basic cable. Um, and now I tell people to don't jump off bridges. <laughs> Cut me a little slack. It's three in the morning. Do I just tell people I like pizza? Maybe that's what I do. I just say I like pizza. I don't like too much sauce. But don't cheat me on the cheese or you're going to be my mortal enemy. Does that let people know they're not alone? How about this one? I'm Paul Gilmartin, and I'm afraid that if I make a mistake, you're going to avoid me and I'm going to die alone. Really, because if I boiled everything down to it, that kind of drives my thinking every day. Um, I've had the fear of making mistakes since I was, since as long as I can remember, my first really vivid memory of being around other people is kindergarten, and we were assigned a um, a thing to do. I don't know if assigned is even the right word, but we were given pieces of paper to color into, and it was some type of object. I don't know if it was a circle or a square, something very complex. And... Uh, and the teacher said, uh, so fill in this portion with blue, fill in this portion with red. 
And about a minute into it, I realized I did it the wrong way. And I burst into tears. And I remember vividly the teacher saying, it's okay. It's okay. It's, it's, it's not a problem. But having this feeling like, I can't describe it. You know, I'm certainly not, it's not as extreme today, but there are still remnants of that. I mean, my first, my kindergarten report card said, Paul is a nice boy, but he cries too much. That's maybe that's what I should open the show with. And yet, if you met me 15 years ago, you would say that dude is fucking arrogant and entitled and he is not sensitive. So how, how did I reclaim that childhood sensitivity, but in a good way? Uh, I've gone to a lot of support group meetings. Uh, I've gone to a lot of therapy. Um, I've had to do a lot of things that I didn't want to do because it involved talking about my feelings and feeling vulnerable. And I had to do all of these things essentially to save my life because I knew I was going to drink myself to death or I was going to take my own life. Happy Thanksgiving. Um, so that's, if you're a new listener, that that's kind of uh, who I am and Speaking of therapy, uh, our sponsor is is BetterHelp.com, and um, I didn't do ads for them for the last couple of weeks because they were in the process of uh, rewriting their terms of service and the language in there. There was a couple of things that um, they they wanted to tweak, and uh, the way it was originally worded, uh, I think, wasn't ideal, and so they wanted to uh, to do that. And I said, well, let me just um, Hold off on doing um, some ads until you get that new language, and then I'll put a link on it to the ways that BetterHelp has tweaked their uh, their interface. There was a lot of misconceptions out there about who BetterHelp is, what they do, um, and yes, so we're back on board, and um, I'm still seeing my BetterHelp therapist. I love her. Her name's Donna. She helps me so much. I've been seeing her for two years. Um, and by seeing her, I mean uh, having sex with her outside of her marriage. <laughs> oh, BetterHelp's going to love that one. Um, no, I've been I've been her client for, for two years, and um, I love it. I think uh, BetterHelp is a great service, and uh, I think you should check it out. So if you are interested, go to betterhelp.com slash mental. And uh, make sure you include the slash mental so that you uh, they know that you came from this podcast. Uh, fill out a questionnaire. They'll match you with a, a betterhelp.com counselor. And you can experience a free week of counseling to see if online counseling is right for you. And you need to be over 18. And you can communicate with your therapist in a variety of ways. You can do it video. You could do email. You could do uh, uh, text, uh, live chat, uh, phone etc etc and when i say you'll get matched with a better help com counselor one of the confusions was that people um didn't people thought that better help was training the therapist which they are not they are a provider of they connect 
people to therapists and they vet those therapists. You know, they check their licenses, you know, they look into their backgrounds, et cetera, et cetera. And so, um, th- these are some of the things that they are making more public now is the way that they, they vet people because, um, you know, it just, the, the way it was worded, uh, needed more, uh, clarity. Um, but, and again, big fan of what they do. So betterhelp.com slash mental. And, um, for those of you who are, are, are wondering if, uh, Grady is still adorable, he is, and hasn't changed in, uh, in a second. Um, it's three in the morning. i I don't even know what he hasn't changed in a second is supposed to mean. Also, my arm is in a sling. I had elbow surgery about eight days ago, and um, I'm so fucking tired of sleeping on my back. But I'm grateful. Here, let's get to the thanks part. I'm thankful that I have health insurance. I'm thankful that I live in a place where I can get good quality care. I'm thankful that I have friends who are helping me. I had a friend, shout out to Julia, who took me shopping tonight after a support group meeting. She attended her first uh, support group meeting. It's funny, we were talking on the phone and she was describing some struggles she was having. And I said, you know, I go to the support group. If you want to check it out, let me know. In fact, I'm going tomorrow night and uh, I need a ride. So uh, she's like, great, I'll pick you up, I'll check it out. And uh, then I made her take me grocery shopping. So that's what I'm talking about, is lure people into your trap of getting them to take you shopping. That's who I am. There's a part of me inside that I don't want anyone to know about because it's weird and gross and lame and people will hate me. It was so hard to be on the planet. Just doom. People-pleasing. Dread. Silent, invisible. Just wailing. Stuck in the grip of the obsession. Derealization. Depersonalization. A suicidal ideation. I was so embarrassed and so full of shame. If I don't get help and get what I need to get... You know, I did some horrible, horrible things. Then I'm not going to be here much longer. God, I wish I could go back and undo them, but I can't. So snipers would shoot in our sides. My father was a notorious pimp in Boston. I can't do this anymore. It was kind of like Scarface. You can change somebody's life just by listening. Through vulnerability, uh, comes healing. It felt like I'd been holding a sword and shield, and I dropped them. And to this day, I have never had a better night's sleep. I started crying in a job interview saying, (laughs) and I was like, LA is hard, man. LA is so hard. (laughs) And I I didn't get that job. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I'm here with Leanne Kreischer, who some of you may know is um, uh, a podcaster, uh, the wife of uh, comedian Bert Kreischer, and you just started doing uh, a podcast, and you have a co-host? or No, no? it's Solo. just me. It's me, and I have two friends. I found that I have a, an amazing group of girlfriends mm-hmm. that all um, are pretty regular people, especially in L.A., and I wanted to do a podcast, but I wanted the podcast to feel like you were sitting in the room with us, just chatting about whatever. I, I kind of start off with a topic, and sometimes it stays on the topic, and sometimes it goes way off topic. I love it. But my point was just I wanted to make something I would like to hear, yeah. you know, especially when you have small kids and you're home by yourself. And, 
you know, I was never into The View or any of those big shows. I don't have time to just sit in one place and watch TV. So I can put headphones on and do my laundry and move around. And so that's why I started it. Bert had been encouraging me to do that for years. Before he and I met, I was a screenwriter. And then when we had kids... Clearly, uh, one uh, we decided one of us needed to kind of focus on the kids. So we sent him off on the road, and I put kind of everything on hold. And my creative uh, juices have been waiting yeah. <laughs> to what, wake back up. What was that decision like, deciding who would stay home and who would continue the career? Well, you know, I'm sure we'll get into my childhood. But because of... Which the, is, by the way, is one of the reasons I wanted to have you on is more than a few people have recommended <laughs> you as a guest and said her story's pretty um, dramatic. I don't remember if that's the word they use, but there's a lot there. I, it's, I, it's rich, yes. for sure. Um, because of my parenting, it was important for me to be present for my kids. Okay. More so than Bert, actually. For me, it, I wanted to be here for my kids because um, my mom has a personality disorder and a lot of sociopathic behaviors. Um, a couple behaviors I won't talk about because I'm afraid she may be litigious. <laughs> okay. So, but um, she definitely wasn't a normal mom. And I definitely grew up being my own mom and having kids. I, I didn't realize how much I lacked until I started giving that. And I, I, there were times when I was a parent early on where I went, wow, I didn't, I didn't actually get that. Now, I don't know how I knew to give it. I don't know if it was just because I was more mature and I worked on myself for so long. But it was a double-edged sword being a parent because it was so amazing to love these kids and give them everything that I thought they needed to be healthy people. And at the same time, it was a very hard look at what I didn't get. Were there a lot of moments of closing the door and crying? You know, not a lot, but there were some. Is there a moment that you can remember where the, the weight of something you had just kind of pushed aside suddenly... You really felt it? Mm, that's a good question. Um, I can't think of a moment, but I, I do remember I remember seeing everybody thinks our daughter Isla is like Bert, and she is somewhat, but she's very stubborn, and I am very stubborn. And she's very tenacious, and I am very tenacious, <laughs> which is, I think, a good part of uh, a good quality to have if you're a survivalist. If you survive things, being tenacious and being stubborn can be really helpful. And I remember how much trouble, I had this one moment where I remembered how much trouble those two things got me in as a kid with my mom and how proud I was of Isla for having them and having that moment of going, wow, that actually makes me proud of myself. And that's kind of amazing. So having her, having Georgia, Georgia, our oldest daughter, is very similar to Bert emotionally. They're wired very similarly. Describe Bert to the people who don't uh, know him. Oh, boy. <laughs> oh, boy. Bert's a stand-up comedian. Yes. He's a handful. He is a lovely human being. I have never been loved by another person like I've been loved by Bert. Not more, not as deeply, not as sincerely ever. 
He is very giving and very sweet. And he is very self-focused. He is very reactive. He's quite emotional. Um, I joke all the time and say I'm the man and he's the woman. Emotionally, because I'm far tougher than he is, he takes things personally I would never imagine taking personally. Um, He has anxiety, like diagnosed anxiety and panic, as does Georgia. Um, So he's a bit more fragile uh, than than I am for sure. But he's, you know, comics can be, I think comics are their own beast. You know, they don't see the world like other people. Lucky for us. But sometimes I would not want that brain, you know. It is it is not uh, a thing that is great when you're not doing business things. Exactly. When you are not creating, it's the same brain that yeah. paints the gloomy future. Absolutely. That extrapolates the doom. That creativity doesn't know when it is safe to be creative and when it's not safe to be creative. You are right. And Bert thrives on chaos. So a diet exercise plan, not going to work. The regular stuff people do, go to the dentist regularly, get a checkup regularly, doesn't work for him. It's got to come from some kind of chaos, which I don't like chaos. Um, We're an interesting pair, I think, because I think he needed me to to be stable. Mm-hmm. And I think I sought him out because he was familiar. Yeah. So, um, and in 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 finding the familiar spouse, if they're familiar in the right ways and different in the right ways, it can be very healing. I think if they're familiar in the right and the wrong ways, it cannot heal. Yeah. It can be very destructive. So um, he is not familiar in the right ways. Um yeah, he's a, he's a really good person, but he is very um, neurotic. You know, he's really neurotic about a lot of stuff. He's afraid to fly, and he flies two days a week, and he's terrified to fly. So, so he flies despite being terrified. Yes, he's a, he's a complete dichotomy uh, all the way across. Is that because he has to fly to go do stand up on the weekends? Yes. Yeah. If he didn't have to do that, he would. Yeah, he would never fly. I don't think. And fortunately, uh, he's at that place in his career now where he hasn't doesn't have to do a Tuesday through Sunday week at a at a club right. he can go in and just do a Friday Saturday or even just one night and what a gift that yeah. must be to your family it is good if he would actually do that <laughs> <laughs> he still leaves like Thursday morning and comes back Sunday yeah. so he still does Thursday Friday Saturday and then comes home Sunday, usually. I got you. So we have one day. And is it because that's his choice or that's the deal the club offers? Because a lot of clubs won't offer you the Friday, Saturday, uh, because it's a hassle for them to find somebody different for right. Thursday, Sunday. So right. um, I'm just wondering, is that by choice for him or is that uh, what is being offered? Uh, you know, him? that's a good question. Or maybe both. Maybe they I offer it and he's happy to... I think it. it's both. I think he's always been of the philosophy. This is one great quality that Bert has. He's very aware of how he came up through the ranks of these clubs. And he's very aware that this is a business for the club owner as well as for for him. So he's unwilling to shaft them. He's he's all this this discussion happens all the time with his agent, you know. I'd rather give them the Thursday night and make them happy because one day 
I may not be selling all these tickets, and I'd love to go back and go, hey, can I have a Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and have them say yes, because their thoughts about me were I was a team player, and I was aware of how my actions affected the club owner. He's very aware of that. He's a very team player kind of guy that way, and I think a lot of comics aren't. They're just all for what they can get, and that's fine. That's how they function, but that's that's kind of not how he functions. Yeah, and so. In my experience, it tends to be one way or the other, mm-hmm. that you're just oblivious to other people's needs mm-hmm. or you want to protect their feelings and right. and and also terrified of somebody thinking badly of you yes. and talking to somebody else. Yes, that's he's the latter. For I sure. am the latter as well. Yeah, he's the latter for sure. And in some ways you could you could say that gets in his way, you know. But um, I don't think it does. I think the universe pays attention. And I think that the universe knows when you're good to people and it pays you back. Maybe not in the way you think you're being paid back, but I can say pretty confidently, we're happily married. We have two healthy children. We love our life. And if this is the way life works for us to be happy, then that's okay. We don't need to be, he doesn't need to be, I think he feels this way. He doesn't need to be the next big whatever today um, just for the sake of being the next big whatever. It's, it's about a little bit more than that for Bert. He's a really white picket fence guy. And this crazy drinking, you know, partying, staying out all night, um, he's a dichotomy. Yeah. <laughs> like two sides of one coin. It's kind of uh, crazy. Does the the drinking and the partying ever become an issue between the two of you? It doesn't. Um, I think if his personality changed, if he drank, it would. If his behavior changed or his ethics or morals relaxed, it would. But they don't. He's very, um, he's very adamant about being faithful, and I think that that is not normal in the world of comedy. Um, and that's something that he's. He's pretty adamant about. And, you know, like I said, his morals kind of stay intact. So the only thing that worries me about his drinking is his health. Uh, You know, if if someone said, your liver will last forever, drink all you want, I'd be like, fine, he's totally fine. I don't really care because he really doesn't have a mood swing, a shift in behavior. He doesn't treat me any differently. He doesn't talk to the girls any differently. He doesn't really drink that much in front of the girls if we're at a barbecue or something. But the drinking like out at clubs and stuff. I don't really care, uh, because except for his health, his physical health. Other than that, I'm not worried about that at all. Um, well, let's talk about the shit show you grew up in. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, I'm from a town of 1,800 people in Georgia, really small town. My parents were high school sweethearts, and uh, my uh, they got married three weeks after my mom graduated high school. I'm an only child, and when I was four, my well, my mom worked in a factory sewing men's suits to pay my dad's way through auto mechanic school. And when he graduated and started his own shop, he said, okay, to my mom, it's your turn. What would you like to do? Do you want to go to college? Do you want to go to beauty school? What would you like to do? And she decided she wanted to be a model. So he sent her to Barbizon so that she could learn to be a model. And at four, she went to Chicago to work on her book, and she didn't come back for a while. When you were four? When I was four. Okay. Yeah, she left, and she didn't come back for a while. And my dad was trying to get her to come back, and she just wouldn't 
wouldn't really come back, would wire her money, go to the airport to pick her up. She wouldn't be there, not on the plane. She did this for like a year and a half on and off. She came and went. But after that, they divorced and separated. And my mom took me to Atlanta. Now, I'd lived in this town of 1,800 people. While my mom was gone, I had stayed with her mom and dad while my dad was working. Her, her dad had really severe PTSD and was a lunatic. Was like Was he a war veteran? Yes, he was. He was in World War II. His ship was the first ship on um, Nagasaki after they dropped the bomb. He was there 30 minutes after they dropped the bomb. What? And he was in charge of finding survivors. Oh, my mm. God. And I think he was 19. Oh, my God. Yeah. So my childhood with him was spent under the dining room table hiding. As soon as he came in the house for lunch, I hid. Because the minute the screen door opened, the screaming, he would just scream, where's my goddamn lunch, May? Where's my goddamn lunch? Before he even got in the door. He screamed at my five-foot-tall grandmother. He was 6'2". The entire time he was in there about everything. Where's the salt? Where It was screaming the whole time. So I was terrified of him. I hid the whole time, and I stayed with him five days a week with my other cousin, um, who was my same age. Um, so those were my weeks when my mom was gone. My dad, during that time, was utterly shut down. He could not function. He was left by his high school sweetheart. He was so heartbroken. I remember getting up when I was probably four or five, and he would just be sitting at the dining room table staring off into space. I mean, it must have been depression, but I would make my own breakfast and be like, all right, here goes the day. Let's go hang out with PTSD, man. So no one knew he had PTSD until I was in high school. Your, your My grandfather, grandfather um, when he, he had a complete mental breakdown and was institutionalized at the VA for a little bit and, and then diagnosed and then put in treatment and then spent every day sobbing. He would just sob all day. Uh, so he got in touch with the sadness that was making him angry. Yes. And in a, an overwhelming way, um, in a way that no one really knew how to handle. Like you'd say, hey, Papa, and he would go, <laughs> and that was it. So I just would not know what to do. And then with him, when I was about 20, this is my mom's dad. My dad and I went to visit them because my dad is such a good person. He uh, never wanted me to be away from my mom's family or anything, so... And he told us his whole so, story about the war. The other grandparents were your mom's parents. Correct. The but, ones okay. I stayed with every day were my mom's oh, okay. parents. Okay. Sorry. I'm not being very clear. You story. might have said that. I, and I, I don't I think might I have did. Not remembered. Um, but he told us the whole, his whole experience that he remembered about World War II. And then we were like, okay, this makes complete sense. Why you're pulling dead bodies. He was talking about how you could see where a tree was and all the roots were disintegrated and how everything was disintegrated and people had body parts missing and everything's burned. And I can't even imagine at 19 processing that 19 in the forties too, when no one talked about anything. So, so I kind of had a good little, I don't know about closure, but a good, a good kind of 
ending with my grandfather. He passed away a couple years ago. And from the time he told me about his experience in his 20s, he had stopped in my 20s. He had stopped crying all the time by then and was able to talk about stuff. So from my 20s until he passed away, I was about 45. We had a good relationship. Um, that must have been amazing. It was amazing. He was he was actually a really sweet man and loved very deeply, but was just beyond broken. I can't imagine being his daughter, who's my mom, who is definitely broken. Uh, how that must have been for that to be your all day, every day. It's one of the reasons I have a lot of compassion for my mom. You know, my mom... I've deduced from years of therapy is narcissistic, like as a personality disorder. And, and she's definitely had a lot of sociopathic behaviors, some of them quite illegal and life threatening to people. But to me, she's, she used to make me steal things and she would say things like, you know, put that in your purse. If you get caught, you won't get in trouble, but I'll get in trouble. That's definitely not okay. And, you know, so I can't imagine being her growing up with that dad. How you just don't, how you don't have a chance. How do you have a chance? You know, I would love when there's a discussion of us going to war. I would love to see a week of people coming in to Congress. Mm -hmm. The generations of people who are affected by the PTSD mm -hmm. from a returning soldier, so that we can not just monetarily say how much is this war going to cost us the collateral damage it doesn't just affect the person suffering it affects everybody in their life i mean even people who take their own lives because of this terrible condition it just affects so many people it definitely was a contributing factor to my mom's uh, problems her brother um also was a terrible addict um, and I think it's two manifestations of the same abuse. Yeah. And they also, I know my mother was also sexually abused, not by her dad, but by an uncle when she was five. And I know from looking into narcissism as a disorder, um, that's usually the cause of it, is that it's a sexual abuse. And uh, what happens in their brain is they decide that if, if you're not in alignment with me, you're life-threatening. So mm. if you say, I don't like pepperoni pizza, you're actually trying to kill me. <laughs> That's what their brain does to protect themselves. And they're so little. I mean, the five is really little. So I can't imagine that happening and then having this dad that ha was suffering so loudly and violently. So my mom became a massive control freak big narcissist and her brother became a alcoholic heroin addict and ended up schizophrenic at the end of his life. Uh, the doctors told us from his drug abuse really kind of um, triggered schizophrenia in mm. his brain. So they both suffered a lot from that PTSD. Um, but growing up with a mom like that was really hard because, um, and was she awarded custody? She was. I mean, I just was, because that was the time. It was 1977. So yeah, she was awarded custody, and she moved me to Atlanta. I'd been in this hometown with both sets of grandparents, cousins everywhere. My dad lived on 
this one road that was a mile and a half long dirt road. I was related to every single person <laughs> on the road. Were you raised in Mayberry? Pretty much. It's still pretty much Mayberry. There's still 1,600 people live there. That's it. It's, we have a Piggly Wiggly and, <laughs> and one red light. So it's just a tiny place. And then she kind of plucked me from there to downtown Atlanta in the middle of the gay community because she thought – what an amazing place for a young lady, or not amazing, but a safe place for a young lady to live with, uh, surrounded by gay men because they'll love her and they, they won't harm her in the way that she was harmed. And, you know, kind of a good plan. Not a lot of kids in the gay community in the 70s, I have to say. Yes. Pretty lonely on my street. But I, it was really lonely childhood. I, grew, I had a cat named fatty that was my sibling you know he he was i'm really connected to animals now i have so many animals now and i know it's because that's how i coped with life was to just pour it all into my cat um my mom was demanded respect all the time my voice did not matter ever because if it weren't in alignment with hers it was life-threatening so as a child i didn't know that but as a child, I learned very quickly to stop talking. I just stopped talking. Um, and I stopped showing her myself very quickly. I think part of me was angry at her because she had been gone so much. But I think the other part of me felt very unsafe. Um, what were some of the thoughts that you would think to yourself but you wouldn't voice? I, you mean, what do you mean? I would say things like, don't, don't, don't say anything. That's what you would think to yourself. Mm -hmm. Just yeah. go to your room. But what were what would some of the things be that you wanted to say, if you can remember, or in a generalized way, what would you have liked to have said to her? What would I have liked to have said to her? Yeah. As a child, I would probably wanted to say, you know, leave me alone. A, a lot of the stuff she was very. I was a tomboy. She was a model. That didn't work for her. I never brushed my hair. I never wore fashionable clothes. I didn't care about that stuff at all. And she didn't like that. She made me model when I was a kid, and I hated it. I used to go into auditions and blow them on purpose because I was like, I don't freaking want to do this. I got cast in a movie uh, called Little Darlings when I was young. And I spent the summers with my dad. That was part of their custody was I got to spend three months in the summer with my dad. And he came to school last day of school, and he dropped me off the day before school started. I stayed the whole summer because I didn't want to be with her. Was it great being with him? It was amazing. My dad is one of the sweetest people. He's, he's, he was the best dad for a child. Once I got to be like teenager adult, he was a little out of his league, but especially with a girl, um, especially with a girl with my mom who figured out how to connive and lie and, you know, not be a good person. Um, but as a child, he was amazing. I mean, I went fishing all the time. We would ride dune buggies. We would ride horses. We would sleep on the riverbank, on the ground. You know, he was just a blast. And I had two cousins my age. So I stayed with my two cousins all day. So I had like a family and that all my family's there. Amazing. It was amazing. It was like something from, you know, a novel. It was, we still go back every summer because I want my kids to, to see that little piece. That was probably the reason I could make it through the other nine months of the year was that I knew 
this is something I became very good at. I learned in therapy is I'm a very patient person because I would tick tock. I just got to make it till May 31st. And after that, I'm going to the, to my dad's and everything's going to be good. And then I just, when September came, Labor Day came, I just got to make it to Memorial Day. Just baby steps to Memorial Day. That's how I compartmentalized it in my head. And your cat did the opposite. My cat stayed with my mom. But, you know. It's like, oh, shit, May 31st know, right? is around the corner. <laughs> Fuck. <laughs> Poor cat. But oh, she was good to the cat. She's always been really good to animals, too. But. So yeah, I, I had that, those three months in the summer. I think that's why I was able to heal out of a lot of stuff with my mom. You know, my mom was controlling in that she was, um, I had to take 21 vitamins a day. I had to drink niacin and cod liver oil because she believed that was good for my health. It was awful. Um, I tried to start taking vitamins again because I'm 48 and I thought I should start taking like at least a multivitamin. I had the most bizarre experience. I put a, a, a vitamin in my mouth. I can swallow medication, no problem. Swallowed it, and it came right back out. It came out from my stomach, threw it up with nothing else thrown up. And it shook me up so badly. I talked to my therapist about it, and she went, that's trauma. That's just trauma. And, yeah, 21 vitamins a day doesn't sound so bad. but that, That's a lot of vitamins. 21 vitamins a day when you're seven, and the vitamins are like horse pills and niacin. I don't know if you've ever taken niacin. It can make you nauseous. It makes you hot. Your whole body turns red. It would make me shake. I'm sweating now just thinking about it. Um, cod liver oil tastes like ass. She used to make for dinner, she would make me have popcorn because I was so skinny. I, my dad used to say, your arms are going to like break off and stick up in you. You're so skinny because she was also macrobiotic. So I had to be macrobiotic. I had no sugar, no processed foods at all of any kind ever. So of course, May 31st, I ate McDonald's for three, <laughs> three months straight. I was like, where's the sweet tarts? Come on. I need some Dr. Pepper. Um, but so all my food intake was highly controlled. She monitored my bowel movements. If I ever went too long air quotes without a bowel movement she would um spread paper on the bathroom floor and watch me try and take a bowel movement <laughs> i mean that's the kind of control i'm talking it's not normal stuff um do you think that there is an element of sexual abuse in that you know i never thought about that but that's really interesting you say that because i had she also used to we lived in a two-bedroom apartment with one bathroom, and she she was always naked, always naked. She would clean the house naked. She would watch TV naked. Sometimes she'd wear clothes if she were cold, but she was totally cool being naked. And uh, she used to, like, go in the bathroom and douche in front of me. And I'd be, like, on the toilet being like, oh, my God, I don't want to see this. She would talk very openly about her attractions and her... She wouldn't talk about the act of sex, but like, ooh, I can't wait to blah, blah, blah. And I'd be like, I'm eight. Uh, the good thing about me is that I always had a sense that she was not, that that was wrong. Like that behavior is not okay. I always knew that what she was doing was not okay. That it was not okay to clean your house naked. That it was not okay to make me take 21 vitamins a day. That 
I was so embarrassed to open my lunchbox at school because of the dried banana chips and organic peanut butter spread on a rice cake. That's what I had for lunch, you know, or tuna fish with nothing, <laughs> you know, oh and everybody God. else was eating like, you know, pizza, ham <laughs> sandwich. And I'm like, yeah, I'll be eating my boiled egg. Nothing oh my on it. God. Um, Just uh, briefly to go back to the, the bathroom stuff yeah, and yeah. the nudity. Yeah. It fits a pattern that I have discovered doing the podcast. Um, I experienced, uh, it, it, there's a, a, a term for it co- called a covert incest. And there's a book by a guy named Kenneth Adams. Mm-hmm. And he coined the term covert incest. And it is sexual abuse through, um, while it comes short of uh, penetration, yeah, yeah. things like that, it's a violation of the the child's boundaries. It's the the person using that child, either they're getting them to look at you when you're naked, or you inspecting their body, or mm-hmm. you know, et cetera, et cetera, um, for the adult's gratification and the ramifications of it emotionally mm-hmm. are every bit as traumatic as if there was overt uh, incest. And the reason I mention this is not to try to educate you, but should there be anybody listening who has never heard about this, we've we've done more than a few episodes where this comes up and the, and the, the guest has always just kind of said, oh yeah, it was creepy, I didn't like it. Um, Read this book by by Kenneth Adams, and I I have started a private Facebook group. There are so many of us who experienced my mom's pattern wasn't like yours. Mm-hmm. She didn't walk around naked, but she would use her motherly access to my body mm. for like she took my temperature rectally until I was eight years old, oh, and, and I would yeah. say, "Why are we still doing it?" This way, there was reasons for me to have my clothes off that didn't feel right. And right. Then if I would want to cover up, she would chide me as if I was the one with the problem. And the the reason that I bring this up is because it it is important. It, yeah, it, it fucked me up deeply. Mm. And the people that I have met and become friends with, and we've shared our stories. What you described mm-hmm. is textbook. It's a narcissistic mother mm-hmm. who, uh, and when we're talking about covert abuse, fathers also do it, yeah, yeah, but totally. with mothers, there is this pattern mm-hmm. of their feeling threatened if you, they cannot accept you having a different view oh, no. of something oh, no, than no, no, you. No. And the bathroom is where a lot of this stuff takes place. Really? Yes. I had no yes. idea. Violating, uh, while that child is in the is in the bathroom and calling the child into the bathroom while they're using the bathroom. Yeah, that happened to me all the time. All the time. Um, some some of the women uh, have described their mother finding reasons to rub cream on their vagina that oh, that did God. not feel uh, that it was necessary. A lot of inspecting their breasts and their vagina as mm. they were going through puberty, a lot of monitoring of bowel movements, mm-hmm. uh, just essentially treating th- that child's body if it was an extension of their selves, which to me is is uh, 
a an extension of their narcissism that it, they absolutely. can't conceive of you being a separate person. That's right. it's, yeah, it's and, like Grey Gardens. <laughs> yes. Yeah, and I don't. Yeah. I, maybe this is making me making excuses for them. I try to see the human being underneath the sickness. Totally. And, and to me, I see them not. I would like to think that they aren't consciously saying, I am going to sexually abuse my child, right. rather them thinking, this feels good to me, so it must feel okay to them. I think that must be it for a lot of people, too. I don't know about everybody. Some people probably have a very malicious intent. Um, I think I was born, and my mom thought, finally someone who will love me unconditionally forever. And unfortunately, I was quite opinionated, and my opinions didn't jive with hers. And I think for her, that was really devastating. And for me, it was too, because then I don't get to be myself. I don't get to be loved for who I am. And I think that monitoring of the bathroom, in my instance, I think, was her feeling out of control with me mm-hmm. and feeling like I, if I have any opinion, then she's losing control and she's got to keep me because, you know, there's that kind of host parasite relationship that they have to have. And I did not have any interest in being a host. I'm thank God I am the person that I am all the time because I came here stubborn and tenacious like my daughter and I sniffed it out early. If I had had a sibling, I've said this so many times, and if they had been wired like I think I'm actually wired like my mom without having been broken. You think those summers saved you? I think the summers saved me. But if I'd had a sibling that was wired like my dad, they never would have made it. They wouldn't have made it. They would have ended up an addict or dead or or completely enmeshed with her. Totally gray gardens with her. Um, because a lot of people who are narcissistic like that have a, two choices, complete enmeshment or complete uninvolvement. And mine is I have no relationship with her at all. I can't do it. I tried so many times throughout my life to make it work. <laughs> and you can't make it work. And, you know, Bert would constantly say, I don't know why you can't just make it work. I can't, I can't conceive of a mom really feeling these things that you're claiming that she feels. And, uh, yeah, it, it, I can't make it work. And I, you know, I tried that, for, for until I was 48 to to make it work and my ex would say to me i've never seen anyone try as hard to you why do you continue to allow that woman in your life she does not care about you but i didn't want to see it because that was life-threatening it is life-threatening that your own mother can't love you the way you need to be loved i believe that in her mind that's the closest thing to love that she can experience i agree and i wonder is it that because they're constantly in that survival mode that they think you need to do exactly what I, the way I view the world for you as my child to survive. I wonder. I don't know. I know my mom, when I was about 20, she was married to her fourth husband at that point, and they were having a little marital trouble. Big shocker since mm-hmm. it's number four. Um, and he recommended she go to therapy. She uh, thought that was ridiculous, but did it anyway. I think there was a part of her that was like, you know, I've, I've kind of messed this up three times before. Maybe I should try something I haven't before. 
And she came home very self-righteously one day and said, the therapist would like to see you, Leanne. So can you come on my next visit? And I went, sure, no problem. So I sat in with her. My mom left, talked to the therapist. I left. (laughs) My mom went back in. And when she came out, she was furious. My mother was furious. And she wouldn't talk to me. And I was like, what did I do this time? I must have said something that's made her unhappy. must have said something that embarrassed her. What did I do wrong? So we get home, and she's not talking to me. And finally, she goes, well, I'm not going to see that therapist anymore. And I said, why? She said, she told me all that was wrong with you is you're anxious. She said, there's nothing wrong with you. So she clearly doesn't know what she's talking about. I was like, wow, I feel pretty good because the yes. therapist just said all anything wrong with me is I'm anxious. <laughs> Score for me. Why would I not be anxious? You're my mom. I don't know which way to turn half the time. So she never went back. That was her last therapy session because that therapist put some kind of mirror up to her and she went, I can't handle it. I can't I do can. it. She can't do it. That's what, you know, when I was... um. 13, I got to choose who I wanted to live with. And I um, chose my dad, obviously. I mean, my dad would, he saw me also every other weekend. He lived an hour away. So he would drive up on Friday and keep me for the weekend and return me on Sunday. And I remember pushing the piano bench. We had one of those doors that had three diagonal windows at the Mm -hmm. top of the door. I remember pushing the piano bench against there and crying. I would fall asleep standing up crying because my dad had left. And my mom was so damn mean. She would tell my dad, I need Leanne home by 4 o'clock. 4 o'clock Sunday, minimum. 4 o'clock we'd be there. She'd make us sit there two, three hours. She wouldn't be home. Wouldn't come home. Just sitting there in the car. I used to start drinking Pepto-Bismol on Saturday night at my dad's. And I would drink it all day Sunday because I was so sick. I didn't want to go home. And my mom would always say, you were sick because you've been eating McDonald's all weekend. No, I was sick because I didn't want to go home. I didn't want to go back to her. I had no voice. I didn't talk to anybody but my cat. Everything I said or did was wrong. You know, she she was also, I forgot this, (laughs) she was also very into transcendental meditation. So we went to the center a lot. And I had to learn to meditate when I was 10. And I had to meditate twice a day every day. And I hated it. And I, I think I hated everything she imposed on me. Because it was an imposition. It was a force. It was not a, I see who you are. And she would she would force something and then prove to me why she's right. See? This is why I'm right. See? This is why I'm right. You know, I took all those 21 vitamins. I was saying this to someone the other day. I missed the maximum number of days of school for sickness the entire time I lived with her. I was so sick. I, If you could miss 21 days of school, I missed 21 days every year. And I didn't want to stay home. I was sick. And it was because of the environment. I had perfect attendance all four years I was in high school with my dad. I never missed one wow. day of school. So was it was the sickness, was it mostly just digestive yes. stuff? Yes. It was almost always digestive. No, I didn't really have colds. Or I had terrible headaches. I had ter- I had migraines so badly when I lived with her that I would pull my hair in class, trying to get relief out of my head. I would just sit there and pull my hair and pull, or I'd push on the top of my head. Um, they were terrible migraines. It was all emotional because I was totally shut down. I didn't have an outlet. By the time I got to my dad's, I just wanted to be happy. 
I didn't want to say, hey, my mom's a real shit. <laughs> Let's talk about it. I wanted to go fishing, you know. I wanted yeah. to eat McDonald's and go fishing and go roller skating and, you know, sleep outside. And, you know, my dad lived on 20 acres. I'd just wander around in the woods and sing songs oh, and just be happy. The best. So restorative. The best. They were the best. They were my savior. Yeah. You know, Bert and I always talk about, not that we can afford this, but we're always like, someday we'll have a vacation home. And I always go, I need to go to the mountains. I need yep. to go to the woods. I need a river. Yes. I need, I need a lake. I need woods. Uh, ocean is beautiful. No. But that place is my, is my church. So I spent so much time in the woods at my dad's house that that pocket is really why I am who I am. But when I moved back to my dad's when I was 13, my dad was a single dad. He worked six days a week, uh, 8 a.m. to 10 p.m., and I felt a little bit like I got the booby prize. You know, I thought every day was going to be fishing oh. and camping and with my cousins and fun. I didn't really realize suddenly I, I was, this is an interesting thing that I've been told in therapy too. I was his wife without the sexual piece. My dad was never inappropriate with me ever, but I did the laundry. I cooked, I cleaned, I went grocery shopping. I, um, so it was logistical stuff. It wasn't yeah. emotional. No, no emotional. Okay. Well, I don't know. It was a little bit emotional. He always confided in me. Yeah. You know, he's not married, had girlfriend. He was with a stable girlfriend for a long time, but if they ever had problems, he came to me for advice. Yeah. And, you know, we were always really close. And I thought, think for him, he just thought it was a way for us to continue to be close. As an adult, I know that it's really inappropriate. Yeah. And as a child, I didn't understand it either. I remember saying to him, I don't know what to tell you. I have no idea. Because yes. how was I supposed to know? I'm right. 13. I don't know what you're supposed to do with this grown woman. Yes. You know, she wants to get married. You don't. Okay. <laughs> I don't know what to say. So I went from one type of parent to another type of parent. And my dad is never meets a stranger, is really happy guy all day, every day, really sweet guy, very simple thinking guy, really smart, but very simple, eat, sleep, drink, like just simple guy. Lives in the same place he was born, you know. So I had been in Atlanta with this very sophisticated uh, sociopathic um, narcissistic person doing mental acrobatics to just fly under her radar and then i moved to someone who just took me for my word at everything i did and i didn't really know what to do with that so i started drinking very early because i felt utter uh, like rudderless i didn't know what i was supposed to do when someone keeps you in a very confined box and then you're let out of the box you don't really know what you're supposed to be doing. There was no gradual, you know. Kind of overwhelming the possibilities. Yes. And probably the newness yes. of it. What, what, yeah, it's so unfamiliar. And the care, quote, care I had received was this oppression. So now my care was, I see you at 10 p.m. I know you love me, but you're not here. Like. No one's here. I'm in, I, we were living in, I, I'm in a trailer by myself, you know? So left to my own devices, I got in a lot of trouble. You know, I, um, started drinking really young. I started having sex really young. And my dad knows all of this. I've talked to him about all of this. So none of it's a big surprise to my dad, but 
I got, I, I didn't, I wasn't promiscuous, but I, I had a boyfriend, but I was still too young to be doing that. But I didn't have, you know, I didn't have any boundaries. So by the time I was 21, on my 21st birthday, I drank a fifth of vodka by myself. Oh my God. That was my, and I, and I was actually, I blacked out, but I didn't, I don't think I even passed out. That's how much I was drinking. I drank six days a week. The only reason I didn't drink on the seventh day is because you couldn't buy booze on Sunday in Georgia. So I was really off the rails. Um, I I went to college, graduated high school, went to college, joined a sorority. Everything that goes on in the 80s in sororities happens, you know, too much drinking, blacking out. I was date raped in college. Um that wasn't awesome, but I also buried it really quickly in my psyche. Happened, blamed myself entirely because I was too drunk, and buried it. What would you say if you could go back to the most painful moments of your, the worst of your moments trapped with your mom? Yeah. The confusion mm-hmm. of living with your dad, mm-hmm. but him not being there, mm-hmm. and then the day after the date rape, those three things, what mm-hmm. would you, if you could go talk to your younger self, those three things, what what would you say? Or what do you think you would have needed to hear or wanted to hear or say? I think I probably would have said, um, you you don't, I don't know. Those are three so different things. After well, the well, date for rape. Each, for each one. After the date rape, I think I would have said, you you deserve to be loved like really loved you don't need to put yourself in harm's way to feel like someone can see you cuz the date rape was the pinnacle of many other dangerous i was i was very much into vandalism <laughs> i was into drag racing i had a very fast car and i drag raced my car what did was, you have <laughs> i had a I had a uh Chrysler, um, oh shoot, what was that car called? It was a turbo. It was white. I can see the car. I can't think of the name of it. I had a Porsche before that. What? I did. How did you afford a Porsche? I didn't afford it. My dad was a mechanic. Oh, so he found so a beater. He found and fixed a beater it up. and fixed it up. And I had a Porsche, so that's a fast car. Was it a 911 or a 928? No, it was a 944. Yeah. But for a 16-year-old, that's a fast car. Wow. So I got very into driving fast really fast and then i had this chrysler i can't remember the name of it it was really fast car really fast like when my dad gave me the car he was said, it new in the 80s or was it yeah. a throwback no it was new in the 80s um conquest a cry a conquest okay um i'm not like a big car guy but it, i know a it little was a bit. fast car it was a turbo yeah, yeah. charged wow. fast. So when my dad gave me the keys he said let me tell you something this fast car this car is faster than that porsche if I catch you driving fast in this car, I will sell it. He caught me driving fast in that car. But I had drag raced a bunch. We would bet, you know, and drag race. And I drank. I always hung out with the boys because I did not trust women ever under any circumstances until I was quite old, until I was about 30. Um, I thought they were just all evil because I'd see a little inkling of she's talking behind her back. Can't trust her. She's out. No, no can do. I mean, I went on my senior trip with four boys, completely monogamous. But I was like, I can't do the girl thing. They just are too scary to me. 
So I always did guy stuff um, to the point where my mom asked me if I was gay at a certain point. I was like, no, definitely not gay because I'm pretty much sleeping with my boyfriend all the time. But right. yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't understand how women work. I don't understand their social dynamic. All of it makes me extremely nervous, and I'm just going to stay out of it. Um, so that's what I did. So I was really pushing the envelope with drinking more than anybody else could drink, driving faster than anybody could drive. I never did drugs, which I was, I don't know why. I just never did. Let's pause there for one second okay. and go back to what you would say to yourself yes. with your mom and then with okay, your sorry. dad. That's okay. I always forget where I am. I'm actually amazed I remembered I, to You're to way do that. better than me. Yeah. Um, with my mom, I think I would have said to her, she, she's, you're not the things that she says you are. You're a good girl. And, um, and it's okay to feel things. So I shut my feelings down. It took me a long time to open my feelings up again after I was an adult. I shut them off from her. Um, what what do you think you would have said to the adult you after hearing that? I think I would have cried. I don't know that I would have had the words. I've never been an articulate. Well, I think I'm articulate now, but as a child, I was a physical kid where I would hit things and throw things and um, push things. You know, I didn't. We, you know, and also in that small community in Georgia. People don't talk about stuff. You don't talk about your feelings. You can talk about the cow that's awesome and brought a lot of money at the sale. <laughs> but you're not talking about, you know, that hurt my feelings. Those conversations didn't exist. So that wasn't part of my um, my experience of life. I didn't see any adults having anything other than superficial conversations or screaming at each other. Because when my parents divorced, they would scream at each other or not talk at all. So I didn't understand that you could say simple things like that makes me uncomfortable right <laughs> that that was that's not acceptable i don't like that will you please stop i never witnessed anybody doing that so that's something i had to learn as an adult so as as that child i think that child would have just cried i think what think i there, need if, if there had been any words with it what do you think she would have said to the adult me yeah can you get me out of here <laughs> or thank you? Um, so funny when I think back to myself as that little girl with my mom, I, I had so many feelings that were overwhelming. You know, they just were bigger than I could carry. So, I think part of the shutting them down was that I just couldn't carry them. Um, and I've, I've been in therapy for so long. I've talked about that little girl so much. I feel like she's almost not, I've, I've healed so much from her that she's more like a, a cloud or something. It's really weird. Now I haven't no, really thought I, I, about it until you've brought it up, but I mean, I've been in therapy forever, and because I want to be there, and I, these these when you're broken like you're broken like that, to be broken then, and then to be broken with your dad in a sense, and then to be broken as an adult, that's a lot of breaks. It takes a lot of work to heal. 
So I don't, I don't know. That's a really hard question. I think she would have said thank you, and I think she would have asked to be taken with, like, take me. Can you just take me with you? And that's what I always. I just wanted to be out of there. So my dad showed up on Friday. I couldn't get in that car fast enough. I'll never forget the way my stomach felt Sunday morning when I woke up and knew I had to go back to my mom's. I've never had stomach problems since I left her ever. I've never had problems going to the bathroom, like consistency, ever. The only time I ever had it was when I lived with my mother. Hmm. And I know that that is emotional abuse. It's, it's not okay, you know. And what do you think you would have said to yourself when you were sitting waiting for your dad to come home at 10 o'clock at night and the, the dream of what this life would look like living with him wasn't what it had been in your imagination? I think I would say I'm sorry. I'm really sorry that this is what you got, you know. And I think that I, there's a lot of times where I, I have always been parentless, even though I have my dad. My dad, like all of us, is limited. And I think I was more than he knew what to do with. Um, I had more energy, and more questions. I used to ask him questions about everything. I was always really curious, and he would go, you ask more questions than any human I have ever known from a really small age. And if you hear that enough, you start going, well, then I'm annoying. Hmm. I'm too much for you. So in order to be loved, I'm going to shut up. So he didn't intend for that to happen. But that's how a person internalizes it when they have a mom. You know what I mean? It was mm-hmm. just a bad combination. So I, I, my dad's not perfect by any stretch. But between the two of them, he was the one I had to count on to survive. You know, you sometimes you choose a parent, and that's your champion. And that's like, he's Superman. He's impervious. There's nothing. He can do nothing wrong. And then years later in therapy, you go, oh, I didn't do quite a few things kind of wrong. Right. So, but, but it's hard yeah. to... And, and there's a difference, I think, sometimes between a, a parent's failure that has the feeling of malice underneath it right. and, and the, the one that has the feeling of cluelessness. Malice or illness. Yeah. Like as an adult, I look back at my mom and I feel very bad. I feel bad for her. I feel not pity, but like deep, I feel deeply sad because I feel like. There's so much of life that she doesn't get to have because she's so broken. And that's been part of the healing process for me is to, you know, forgiveness is freedom. And in order for me to forgive her, I had to really look at everything I was angry at her about and write about it a lot and talk about it a lot and cry and blame and point my finger and stomp my feet and have a tantrum which I never got to have any of those things as a child. So I think I had to really live out all of my feelings to then get to the place where I I can really say she's not well and she loved me the best she could. Unfortunately, it just wasn't very healthy and I can't allow that in my own life now and I will not allow it in my children's under any circumstances. It's so freeing when you let those feelings out mm-hmm. and you begin to get this sense of 
oh, I do have autonomy. I'm not trapped right. anymore. Right. And then that person almost shrinks mm-hmm. in, in the power that you feel that they have over you. And for me, that was when I was able to forgive her as I eventually began seeing her as a four or five year old in a, in a woman's body. Right. And people, there are so many people who are afraid to go to the place of letting the rage out at a parent. And yeah. to them, I want to say this isn't about punishing them. This is about you no longer punishing yourself. That's and, exactly right. And you don't have to speak to them to, no. to do these things. And this isn't about whether or not something is prosecutable. This is just about letting your feelings out. Absolutely. You know, when I lived in New York um, in my early 20s, I started writing uh, letters to my mother. And as soon as the letter was finished, I'd burn it. I'd write the letter, I'd get it all out, and then burn it. And what would it feel like? Just cathartic? Or? It would feel, it was an upheaval. It was an emotional upheaval. It was really hard. Uh, no illusions about it. That process of feeling your feelings is terrible. It's awful. It's terrible. It's like a root canal with no anesthesia, times 10, I think. It's awful. But it's the only, you know, through is the only path. You can't go around it. <laughs> yeah. There's no way around it. You have to go through it. So that was the way I went through it. And, you know, I also made some conscious decisions. I've had some of people that listen to my podcast write me about these two decisions that I've talked about. And by the way, what is the name of your podcast it's again? Wife of the Party. Okay. <laughs> Wife of the Party. Although we don't talk about my husband much, but... It's a great name for a podcast. I thought it was though. a good name. So... um One was, I remember being in my early 20s and deciding my happiness was dependent on me. So I can no longer, I no longer gave myself permission to blame my mother or my dad or my experiences from my childhood to tell me how I feel today. So if I have ownership of myself then I have to process all those angry, terrible feelings and not blame it on them. They belong to me. And I believed, I still do believe, pain carves a deep crevice that you get to fill with joy. So if you can let that pain carve the crevice and believe that joy will fill it, it will. That's my experience. What a beautiful statement. That's was is that your uh your own? I don't know. I, I think so, but yeah. I've been saying that to myself since my early twenties. Where like if I can just dig this trench out of all this shit that I feel about my childhood, it will fill up with joy because that's what I want. My intention from that time was to be happy. It was not to me, success brought happiness. Marriage brought happiness. Love brought happiness. Health brought happiness. So I thought if I set my goal at happy, then I would have to take care of everything under happy. Or I couldn't be happy. So I just systematically started chipping away at the things that made me unhappy. Um, and a lot of them were focused on old stuff, on old thought patterns, on self-talk that was destructive. And, you know... And I would say obligations. Yes. Feeling like you need to meet, meet obligations, otherwise you're a bad person. That yes. will keep you frozen more than anything else. Forever. Forever. And, you know, I started developing this philosophy of if I make myself happy, not from a selfish 
egotistical place, but from a place of self-care and love, then automatically the people in my life will be happy. If I work on my own happiness, um, then that reflects in who you're surrounded with, you know, like draws to like. So if you're miserable and you're, you're angry and you're, you know, brooding, then that's, that's what the universe, you draw that to you. Or that's what I believe anyway, is you draw the energy you put out. So I didn't want to put that out anymore. I didn't want to be the drag racer, you know, I ended up in jail for DUI, you know, I didn't want to be that anymore. I wanted to be happy. So that's one thing I'd said that my podcast one a couple people email me about the other one was and say that that thing one more time that's like something that dalai lama would say that was that's <laughs> maybe so beautiful. he did and i totally grifted it i but say I don't you, remember. Own, you own it as yours <laughs> say it again so pain carves a crevice that you can fill with joy but you can't carve the pain out until you really go through all that pain i had a friend tell me one time you have more sadness in you than anybody I've ever known. And the only way you're going to get it out is to cry. I was one of those people that would white knuckle through every sad movie because I was not going to cry. And I think I was scared that once the floodgates opened, I wouldn't be able to close them. Yeah. But when he said that to me, I thought you punched him. No, 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 I should have probably, but I said, I think he's right. So I used to lock myself in my closet in New York and cry every day for no reason. I'd just sit and start thinking about something from my childhood usually and cry. It was very cathartic. It was very good for me because it carved the crevice. Yeah. But the other thing I said that seemed to be helpful was, you know, I had the date rape. I was um, really drunk. I was really upset. um, And I didn't really have time to process it. Because like a week later, my dad's wife left him and he moved into my dorm with me and became suicidal and had a nervous breakdown (laughs) in my dorm room. (laughs) What? Hence the burying of the date rape. (laughs) I didn't have time to deal with my own. (laughs) Of all the salves in the world, that might be the worst. I think moving into a fraternity might have been the only worst right. choice you could have made I at that point. Open for business, right? No. Uh, no, yeah. My dad had been with his girlfriend for a long time, and they'd gotten married two years before this, and and she left him for another man, just like walked out the door for another man. She'd been having an affair. And he showed up in my dorm and stayed. He sat on the couch in my dorm lobby and waited for me to get out of class every day. And then all but physically attached himself to me for months. And his and, mother and was... would he spend the night in your dorm mm-hmm. room? He would sleep. My roommate um, pretty much lived with her boyfriend. She, I, I was pretty much living by myself all the time. And uh, so, yeah, he just slept in her bed. And no, 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 he lived with me for a long time. <laughs> I can't imagine how smothering that must have felt. Um well, I started losing my hair because of it. I think it was a bit overwhelming. Um, I lost a lot of my hair. My hair started, I started having like serious health problems, I think because of the massive drinking. My liver was inflamed, enlarged or whatever, and my hair was falling out. And Other than that, you were doing great. Other than that, yeah, I was super. <laughs> I was definitely passing all my classes, not. <laughs> so after, you know, 
my grandmother, my dad's mom would call me worried sick about him, you know, because she would call him and say, I think I'm just going to end my life. He wouldn't say that to me, but then she would tell me that's what he's doing. And, um, that was a bad spot to be as a daughter. That was a really tough spot. You know, he, after school would want me to drive the streets of our town looking for his wife while he drank. And he was not a drinker, has never before or since drank, um, I, it was awful. I, I am. I am just. <laughs> so was the listener right? Do I have I, a story? <laughs> oh my god! Yeah, it was nutty. Oh my god! It was nutty. It was. It was awful, and you know, it made me angry at my dad for a long time because I didn't deserve to have to do that. I didn't, and you know, and I don't think that's his point of view. I think his point of view is you take care of your family when they're in need, yeah. but. It was really hard. And, you know, the bad thing is his wife was really the only nurturing female, not the only one. I had some great aunts and my grandmother. Both my grandmothers are amazing. But she was with my dad from the time I was about eight or nine until then. I was 20. So she was like my mom. She did every birthday party. She was at the prom when I had parents night at, you know, as a cheerleader, she was the mom. Unless my mom just randomly showed up, which happened a few times. Um, and she, my dad forbid me to talk to her. You can't talk to her. She cheated on me. Can't do it. And that was another massive loss for me. I mean, I have a relationship with her now, but it took a long time before he, I felt it was safe for me to stand on my own two feet and go, no, actually, my relationship with her has nothing to do with your relationship with her in that I don't have a mom, <laughs> and she was kind of it. So I'm going to go back and reconnect with her. But I was it was years later. Your connecting to your needs and mm -hmm. advocating for yourself is one of the most inspiring things I've I've heard. Uh, it it is amazing and a testament to your tenaciousness that you stuck in therapy mm -hmm. and you just kept chipping away. And mm -hmm. and fill in that uh, what do you call it crevice. a crevice mm -hmm. with uh, the French would call it a crevasse a crevasse uh, um, it that's uh, just amazing well thank amazing. you here's what I don't like about you here's uh, what what here's what I don't like about you okay tell me sit, you're gonna want to sit back for this okay no good. that's that, that's just uh, tell me what you don't like I'm no, happy to hear it <laughs> I'm so thrilled that you came. To record because this is just like an ideal episode. It's dramatic. It's compelling. There's hope. There's recovery. You're uh, able to articulate your story. Um, I'm I'm just soaking it all in. Oh, just my soaking it all in. Well, thank you. Which makes me so uncomfortable. Does it? Why? No, it shouldn't. It no, it it doesn't. But there's a little part of me that. Um, that that won't allow myself to fully feel mm -hmm. because the producer in me mm -hmm. is listening to this as a producer. Right. And so I don't get to oftentimes converse with somebody fully as myself. Totally. Um, well, I'm interested to know, uh, I guess your mom was a narcissist? Yes. Yeah. Uh, I don't believe she had narcissistic personality disorder mm -hmm. um, because she was... Um, she did do nice things, uh, for me. And she was somebody who, um, 
I, I believe has the capacity for, uh, compassion, but she did not have boundaries. And I don't know the reasons why she did the things to me that she did. Um, but I believe that she is a sick person. I don't, mm-hmm. I don't believe that she is a bad person. Mm-hmm. She had an awful, awful childhood. And, um, that doesn't excuse what she did, but it made it easier for me to understand that some people are so deeply wounded mm-hmm. that th- if they're not willing to take a really hard look at themselves, which I feel that she can only go so far in right. looking at herself. And I think beyond that point, the shame would make her feel like her very life was at stake. Right. And so that's what I tell myself, but mm-hmm. I don't have a relationship with her. And it's not because of the, the covert sexual abuse. If she, if she owned that, um, and respected my boundaries today, mm-hmm. I would love to have a relationship with her, but right. I can't because there's not a consistency right. and we don't share a reality. Right. And that's one of the things I had to, I had an epiphany in recovery where I went, it, it it's important to have compassion for others, but not at the expense of compassion for yourself. Absolutely. And I wasn't having compassion for myself. And right. people around me had been telling me it for years. No joke. But I was still of that kind of Catholic belief that mm. you, you know, family no matter what. Right. And no, just because Actually, you're related no. doesn't yeah. mean you should. No. No, just because you're related doesn't mean you have to accept whatever they give you. And that's, you know, and... I don't want anyone to ever misunderstand. Um, there's a difference between that, the stuff I was talking about with my mom and a mom who wants you to do your homework. You know, those are two totally different totally things. Totally different things. This is not normal. Like to the point where in middle school, a family tried to adopt me because they thought my mom was so bad. So, and my mom did compassionate good things too. She was not all bad. She was sweet to me too if i ever got sick she was a mountain lion she was great but the damage was far outweighed the good and there is a difference you know between someone who actually cannot accept your boundaries is not acceptable it's not and it doesn't make what I want people to feel is it doesn't make you a bad person if you can't make something work because my mom disowned me when I was 13 didn't talk to me for a year and a half when I was 23 for like three years and then for the last time at 33 and at 33 I went that's it you're not telling me I'm dead to you again this time I'm done because now those times, shame on me. This time, I mean, those times, shame on you. This time is shame on me if I go back in this cycle. This is so cyclical. It's every 10 years. It's like a, it's like a roadmap. Guess what? 43, you're dead again. So I'm not doing it again. And was there a, an arc of the, was there guilt? And if so, did yes. the guilt, did the guilt, how did it going away look? How long did it take until it got to a point where the guilt wasn't fucking with you anymore? You mean the guilt about no longer, no yes. more? Um, actually, or I questioning think, it. I, you know, after the last time, I did not question it. I think the first two times, you're 13, you don't understand what's going on. Uh, at 23, 
at 23, she had asked me to lie to her fourth husband about an affair she was having. And I looked her in the face and said, I don't lie for myself. I'm not lying for you either. And we proceeded to have a very nasty fight. And uh, she kicked me out. Um, and that time I felt I didn't behave ethically because at the end of the fight, I pushed her because I'm, like I said before, I'm a physical person. I wasn't a very articulate person. I would just go push, break, drive fast, you know, drink too much, everything physical. So I pushed her, pushed her down, and I carried a lot of guilt for that. So when the cycle started again of, okay, I'm sorry. Oh, I, you know, my mom's never said I'm sorry, but um, of starting the relationship up again, that time I had been through therapy. I hadn't been in therapy when I'd pushed her. I had been through enough therapy to know how to articulate myself better. So when it happened at 33, I had nothing to be guilty about. I had nothing to hold me like the push held me before and like the teenager did before that. So I felt no guilt at 33. And when that happened at 33, she, I, at 33, there was some crazy stuff. I mean, I don't know if, can I keep talking? I don't yeah. want to run over yeah, any time. No, but no, no, no. We got all day. At, at 23, she was uh, having sex with this guy. That was a mess. That whole thing was a mess. And then at 33, I had met Bert at 32, and we were dating. And um, I'm sure he won't mind me saying this, but I got pregnant before we got married. And uh, she, my mom, who lived in Florida, was trying to help us out here in Hollywood and had arranged for us to go to a celebrity party <laughs> at somebody's house, which was awesome. Okay, and then my grandmother back in Georgia had a heart attack, and I'm very close to my dad's mom. So I emailed my mom and said, "I'm well, I'd been trying, let me back up a little bit. I've been trying to get my mom to come visit me forever, for months and months and months, because we were back in our relationship. Please come visit. Well, a psychic told me, she said, that John Voigt is going to fall in love with me. So I have to wait until John Voigt is in L.A. until I can come visit you. So for months, she was tracking John Voight to see if he was shooting on location or in Los Angeles. And she would not book a flight to see me unless John Voight was in L.A. Oh, my God. <laughs> so when I say my mama ain't like your mama, my mama ain't like your mama. <laughs> she crazy. So <laughs> I kept going, but why don't you just come see me? And the time before this, she had come to see me. She had organized several dates for herself with some old flings and spent the entire time she was seeing me having sex with people, like leaving my house in like lace up leather pants and sheer blouses. And she's 50 something. You know, it was I was like, what the has is happening? But whatever, that's your path. I'm glad to have a relationship with you at all. Right. And then the John Voigt thing started happening. And then this party happened. And then my grandmother had a heart attack, and I emailed her and said, I'm so sorry, we, I'm not going to be able to go to this party. Granny's had a heart attack, and I'm going to go home and, and see about her. I'm sure that went over well. Uh, she didn't speak to me for weeks. And then I found out I was pregnant. And then I started calling her. I need to talk to you. 
please call me back. Did your mom think John Voight was going to be at that party? <laughs> no. Did she think I was calling her about John Voight? Yes. Apparently not, because she never returned my phone calls. So I kept calling. I need to talk to you. So in this time, Bert proposed. We were already, we already knew we were going to get married. This, you know, the pregnancy just sped things up a bit. So I'd gotten engaged, gotten pregnant, can't get my mom to call me back. I try for six weeks to get her to call me back. But we're having a shotgun wedding. It's happening pretty quick. It's happening in like two months. So finally, I send her an email and I say, listen, I can't get you to call me back. Here's what's going on. I'm going to have a baby and I'm getting married and I want you to be there. But I didn't want you to just open the mailbox and find a wedding invitation. I wanted to tell you, but you won't call me back. The email she sent me back was so bad. It was so mean and vicious and angry and hurt. My future sister-in-law at the time, my sister-in-law, was in the room with me when I got the email. I read it silently. I pushed print. I handed it to her. She read it to herself and bawled. She cried the whole time. She was like, I can't believe anybody would speak to their daughter this way. It was, you're dead to me. How dare you disrespect me in this manner? How dare you bring a child into this life? I hope this child teaches you all the lessons that you wouldn't learn from me about respect. I hope that she talks back to you. I hope that she leaves you. I hope I I never want to know your child. I don't want to know your husband. I don't ever want to see you again. I, I send you no good fortune or something like that. And my sister-in-law was just like, I, I've never seen anything like that in my life. So when that one happened, I went, wipe my hands, I'm done. Because this baby in my belly ain't going to know that lady. She does not deserve, I didn't know it was a she at the time, but I thought this person doesn't deserve for anybody in their life to be treated like that, for to treat them like that. There's no way. Then I have two babies. She doesn't come to our wedding. I don't see her for a while. And I'm still close to her mom. So I'm visiting her mom one day. I think Georgia's maybe six and Isla's maybe four. My mom just walks in the door. Hey, guys, it's your nanny. And I'm like, what? Haven't seen her in seven, eight years. No word from her at all. She acts like she's never been gone. My kids didn't know who she was. Bert was there. He was like, who? he'd never met her. Had no idea who she was, and she literally acted like we saw her yesterday. So I shut had fully your, down. Had your grandmother invited her, or was yes, it just okay? She had, and I, my grandmother and I, had some serious talks after that about boundaries because my mother would threaten my grandmother and say, "Do this, or I won't talk to you anymore." And my grandmother would believe her and then do what my mother said. So I kind of had to say to my grandmother. I don't want you to choose, so I'll give you my mom, but I can't come around if she comes around. If we need to meet at a restaurant, if we need to meet somewhere else, I still want to see you, but I can't do that again, and it's never happened again. But after that day, Bert was like, he's never seen me like that before. I went right back to that little girl that lived with her at seven, eight, nine, ten years old. I, I was you just to- kind of shut down. I was totally shut down. I was shaking on the inside. My, my, my bowels were shaking on the inside. My whole inside was shuddering the whole time I was around her. Um, and when we, when we were leaving, she said to Bert, maybe I'll come out to California and visit you sometime. And he went, no, nah, I doubt it. This is the first time I've seen you in eight years. I don't think I'll see you again anytime soon. Did he really? Yes, he did. Good for him. And about three weeks later, there was a letter. 
came to my house, addressed to me, and I recognized that handwriting anywhere, and I didn't even read it. I just handed it to Bert. Bert went in the backyard, read it, came back in and said, that bitch is not welcome in our house ever. So between the email and that letter, Bert had constantly said, I don't understand why you can't reconcile. I don't understand why you can't figure out a way. I don't understand. Don't you feel guilty? And I would say, of course I feel guilty, but I can't do that. I can't do it anymore. I don't deserve another day of it. I don't deserve for someone to say to me, you're dead to me. Yeah, this isn't a matter of somebody being annoying. No, this is a matter of someone being abusive really emotionally abusive. And you know, your mother, the, when you don't have a mother, especially when you become a mother, it is very, um, it's, it's deeply sad. It's really full of grief. Or for me, it, it, that period of being away from her was grieving of saying, I'm done for good was like a death because I really said I'm done for good. Now I've seen her because her father passed away and I went to his funeral and that was another completely bizarre interaction with her. But I have not spoken to her or anything since that day. I knew that day would come. Her mother will pass away at some point. I'll have to see her then as well. But that it just is what it is. She's not allowed in my house when I was still married to my ex, when letters would arrive, um, even though I had asked her, please don't contact me, um, I would, even just seeing the letter, I would be depressed for a couple of days, but I would hand it to my ex, Mm -hmm. and I would have her read it in Mm -hmm. case there was some logistical thing in there that I needed to know about. Right. And um, it's, it was like a death when I, when I cut contact with her because and this is my take on it, the image I had created of her as loving to survive yes, popped. And oh, so yes. that person died. Yes, that makes perfect sense. And it was so painful. And, and it, yeah. it is still painful, even knowing who she is today. Right. It is still painful that, um, you know, I kind of view her as a dog that bites that i have (laughs) compassion for that dog but i can't keep getting bitten bitten. and that's not to say that i haven't made my share of mistakes or or been an asshole but But totally but i think what they do is or what what the how the conditioning works with the narcissist is that everything is pretty much your fault so i believed all the times before it was all my fault. The reason my mother doesn't talk to me is 100% my fault. Mm-hmm. And then after therapy, I realized I may have fault in it, but it's not my fault. There's, there's difference. Mm-hmm. I may have responsibility in, in this relationship, but it's, I'm not, it takes two to tango and I'm not dancing by myself here. She's, mm-hmm. she's kind of dancing too. So to be able to kind of learn. Uh, that's been something that's been really hard for me to learn is that not everything is my fault. If Bert and I have a fight, I automatically try to try to say everything's my fault. I totally fucked up. And he would argue that I don't do that, but I actually do that internally. And I have to fight and say, okay, what is actually my fault and what is not? And that's very much taught by a narcissist is that, oh, you're oh, yeah. absolutely 100% wrong. And 
and that's something I learned in being married to Bert is how to how to argue, how to fight because I never had a voice. So I didn't know how to fight. My mother got mad at a husband and she just leave him. You know, she's on number 6 now. So if they had a problem, I, I think this one's going to work. <laughs> I don't know. He is younger, so he has some stamina. So <laughs> I don't know. Uh, last I heard, it's maybe not. But yeah, with Bird, I had to learn that I could be angry and not break things. Mm-hmm. That I could disagree and not lose a relationship. Because for me to disagree meant absolute loss, you know, of of my mom. The, the core relationship of your life, the person who brought you into this planet. The, if I said no to her, I lost her entirely every time. So that was something I had to learn as an adult. Oh, and that other thing that I didn't say to go back mm-hmm. <laughs> to my date rape incident. I had said this on a podcast that was really helpful. And my intention is to help other people because there are so many people who have suffered sexual abuse and violently and otherwise i remember thinking um that was one moment in my life it was just one moment i have so many other moments so i will not allow that moment to own who i am that moment gets to sit on this shelf and we deal with that moment appropriately and we move on from it because that doesn't define me and that doesn't even inform who i am unless i want it to or allow it to because it was just one moment it was probably 10 minutes at that of my life so am i really gonna let that 10 minutes change everything so dramatically but is that in place of processing the pain no 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 no. that's not in place of it okay that's after it okay because i don't believe that it is possible to do that Unless you process it. You so I right. think we agree on that. Yes, we totally agree on that. No, no, no. I'm sorry. I've, I guess I assumed that went without saying since yes. I clearly I process everything. I assumed, yes. At the top of my lungs lately. But yeah, I, yeah, you have to deal with it. I mean, when I buried it, I buried it really deep because I was dealing with all that stuff with my dad. And gosh, I don't know how many years later. It was probably 21, 22, 23, 24, 25 probably six or seven years later i was in a movie i was in the movie mr wrong (laughs) (laughs) of all movies and i just it flooded my brain like i was watching a movie in my head and my friend i was with my friend and i went we have to believe the movie theater right now i have to i have to tell you this or i'm going to bury it again so we have to leave right now and she got up with me and i told her the whole thing as i remembered it and that's when i started dealing with it in therapy I really didn't know it was there. I really, it's a, it's bizarre how the brain works. It is. I had no idea that was in my world at all. And during this time, after that date rape and after my dad, and I'd had been arrested for DUI and driven home drunk so many times, um, I decided that I, I just talked about this on a podcast yesterday or last week. I was driving my car, my fast car. And I decided if I could just get really fast and just turn the wheel really hard to the left, everything would be over. And that would be awesome. But then I thought, my luck, I'll just be paralyzed from the neck down and it'll be worse. So I'm not going to do that. And then the song from the Eagles, Desperado, came on the radio. (laughs) And I started, I listened to 
every word of that song. And for whatever reason, that song in that moment made me go, you better let somebody love you. Right? That's what that song says. You better let somebody love you. Because I didn't let my mom love me. I didn't let her. Uh, because her love wasn't safe. And I'd cycled through boys every three months. I'd have another boy. So I didn't let them love me either. No girlfriends. No love there. For whatever reason, that hit me. And I went, I better get sober. I better stop drinking. And I better figure out my life. Because this ain't getting me where I want to be. And, and how long ago was that? It was 1990. And how long have you been sober for? Well, I'm not sober. Oh, okay. But, but you just stopped I using stopped it as a crutch. I stopped drinking for seven years. And in okay. those seven years, I went into therapy. Okay. So for me, drinking was about pain. Gotcha. So when I dealt with the pain, I, I didn't, I mean, I drink now, but I drink maybe one glass of wine a month. I, I've been that way for years i stopped drinking for seven years and then after that i literally am literally like one glass of wine yes. a month and i'll have two that's awesome or i'll have none and i don't it so it's really, clearly not a problem it clearly i'm not an addictive person i'm not an addictive personality that was totally self-medicating because i was in turmoil and for me i'm not saying this is everybody's process a lot of people have legit problems with drug and alcohol. Mine was just really about the pain uh, and the inability to articulate my pain. Yes. And I believe it is almost impossible to really process something while you are numbing yourself Absolutely. with compulsive behavior. No, can't do it. No, it's useless. I did, I've never been... Uh, the whole time I was drink. I didn't start therapy until I had not been drinking for a while. And stopping drinking was, for me, surprisingly easy. So that was another thing that let me know that I probably wasn't an addict. I just stopped and went, I'm done. And then I started seeking help. I started like going to Reiki masters and going to psychics and not knowing where to find my footing. And then landed in New York and landed in therapy. And that's where I needed to be. And so you, you upgraded tools. I did. I was like, there's got to be a tool somewhere. I started reading books voraciously. I was reading self-help books, every one I could get my hands on. So I know that the shift from drinking to healing was, it was a clear shift to me. It went from one to the other. Any books stand out? From that era? Yeah. Um, you Can Heal Your Life by Louise Hay. Um, Creative Visualization by Shakti Gwain. <laughs> Those were two I read a lot. And then I went through a phase where I read like the Four Agreements, um, uh, the the Seven Spiritual Habits of what was highly that effective people. The the Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. I read that one, and then I read the Deepak Chopra. Chopra, Deepak Chopra. Chopra. I read I read a lot um, during those times, and then I started collecting. This is another thing I did. Um, I made my own Bible because I'm not very religious. So I started collecting um, quotes, poems, lyrics from music, um, lines from plays, something you would say to me in a book. I still have it. I started it in 94 where I just write down something that is in alignment with my integrity and with my morality and ethics and my beliefs. Oh, I love that. So that I have a I have a manual. So if I ever start feeling 
low, I go back to my my Bible and look and open it up and just read something. I have everything from quotes from presidents to lines from the Beatles. And I was on a walk with a friend one day, and she goes, why can't life just be easy? And I went, I'm writing that down in my Bible. Why can't life just be easy? I love that quote. So Cherokee quotes, everything. That has been a constant since I started this path because I decided I have no roadmap. I have two parents who didn't know how to do it. So I don't have a roadmap, so I have to make my own roadmap. So what does that look like? It looked like all these books. It looks like a collection of quotes. It looks like therapy. It looks like carving the crevasse Mm -hmm. (laughs) and filling it with joy and just going back to that little girl that asked more questions than any other human my dad knows. So go, what does that mean? And why does that happen? And how do you fix that? And how does that make you feel? And how does that make me feel? And why don't we talk about it? You know, just to ask questions about everything and be curious about your feelings even because feelings can be very scary. And confusing. And confusing. But if you don't feel them, you'll never figure them out. And if you don't ask questions about them, I think you'll never figure them out. Why do I feel that way? Well, it's because my mom made me shit on newspaper in the bathroom. That's why I feel that way. Okay, now I can heal that out. But I think a lot of people are afraid of that. And, and I don't know why, because it's part of it's part of who you are, right? It's part of what should make you proud of yourself. Oh, I yeah. think you can only get to that place after the purge of After the purge. a certain amount of of it. Have you, done, have you done a lot of purging? Oh, yeah. yeah. And that's the only way that I could begin to get a sense of myself because right. everything was an external validation of me. Right. And I right. still struggle with it. I still struggle with wanting to be seen, but only on my terms. Mm-hmm. And that's a really high-maintenance thing. So then I'll isolate mm-hmm. or not share my feelings or... right. Th- things like that and it, it's um why, yeah. why why do you think only on your terms why do you because think? i'm a f- i still fear trusting people right um i fear um being vulnerable and exposed in front of the wrong people mm. that i'll feel stupid or weak or needy or they're going to tell me something I don't want to hear. Interesting. That they're going to tell you something you don't want to hear. But it's not a conscious thought. It's the time. Right, right. At the time, it's, no, let's watch Netflix. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) No, let's eat Ben and Jerry's. (laughs) Withdraw or redirect or smokescreen. Do you read a lot of books? Have you read a lot of books that have Uh, helped you? Yes. uh, A New Earth by Eckhart Tolle Uh is a a helpful one. Yes, great book. Uh, some new agey terms in it, but if you can get past those, uh, the wisdom in it is profound. Mm-hmm. And um, Silently Seduced, as I mentioned, by uh, Kenneth Adams is uh, the Bible for, I think, what I have experienced. I'd be interested to know what you think of it. That's so too. funny you said that. I'm scared to read that book. Then you should read it. I don't know. This is the first time I've heard of that book. But when you told me that about my mom, that scares me. Like, you know what's so funny? My mom, when I was, before I was date raped, asked me if I had been molested as a child. That she thought I had been. And I had not. But I guess I had. (laughs) I just didn't know it by her. (laughs) And my mom did the same thing. She, She asked my dad 
to not be physically affectionate with me anymore because she thought he was going to molest me. Really? Yeah, I never forget my mom asking me that. And I thought, why in the world would you, why would you think that? No, I haven't, no. Which makes me think that it's a subconscious thing. Right. In, in them, the the abuse, the using your child right. sexually or wh- whatever it is that, that they're getting off on. But whatever their intent was doesn't, ultimately doesn't matter. Right. It's, it's processing the feelings so that I can be the best me I right. have a shot at uh, at being. Um, yeah, that book scares me. I, I yes. may have to gear up for I won't, that book. I won't pressure you. No, I, I wouldn't pressure feel you. pressured from you. I would pressure myself because, you know, I've been on this um, journey of knowing myself for a long time. So I think we were talking about this earlier before the podcast started. You think you know yourself or you think you've untangled your Mm -hmm. knots and then all of a sudden something happens and you find a whole new ball of knots and you're like, shit, I thought I did this work. I thought I've I've actually done this work over and over. Are you kidding me? That's what I felt at 48. It's crazy, isn't it? Yeah. It can be very defeating. It can be, especially in the beginning because all the pain comes up. But there's clarity and freedom on the other side of it. Absolutely. You have to go through it. You have to go through it. Yeah. But yeah, it's it's not fun. It is not fun. No, it's not fun. So I'm, now my stomach hurts. So yes. now I have to read that book. Rats! Yeah. We can start by you joining the uh, Facebook group if you want. And you could just share okay. a little bit and um, let the other people uh, chime in. And you will be amazed at how similar your story is to theirs. Well, you know, it's so funny. I have a friend who has a mom who's similar to my mom, whose mom also would douche in front of her. And we were, I was telling her that story and she was like mouth open, face white. She was like, that happened to me. That happened to me too. And I thought it was just, well, my mom's just, you know, like whatever. She's just really free with her body. I mean, she was a model, but. I think about it now. I would never do that in front of my kids, ever. Not ever, 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 ever would I ever do that in front of my kids. Not ever. And I think it's important, too, to distinguish between nudity as uh, something that is healthy and nudity being used as a tool to control or make somebody feel something that they don't want to feel. Right, right. You know. Yeah, your mom vacuuming naked is is awkward. <laughs> it's really awkward, yeah. really awkward. Um, and yeah. I and I don't know if I can put into words what the difference is between the two. Right, but you know it when you feel it. Totally, when you're on the person on the receiving end of inappropriate behavior. Right, you know it when you feel it. Right, my mom's I think was all about control. Yeah. Not not so much about sexual stuff, but more about control. Yes. And I think ultimately that's what any abuse comes down to is, is, control. is about control. I didn't think about that, but you're probably right. Yeah. Well, Leanne, thank you so much for a great episode. And it's so nice to, to get to know you. And, thank you um, very much for having me. Thank you. Yeah, I loved it. And now I'm going to invite myself on your podcast. Please. I would love it. That would be amazing. All right. Thank you. Many, many thanks to, to Leanne. Boy, what, you know, that's just one of those episodes where it feels like you, this person's story could be a movie. And we get those every once in a while. And I'm, I'm so grateful for them because, 
Um, you know, as I'm listening back and I'm editing, um, it's, it's like I get to, uh, re-experience it again. That's one of the nice things about having a terrible memory is if I put somebody's episode up more than three weeks after I recorded it, 90% of it is brand new to me. So, uh, yeah, I had recorded this like four months ago with Leanne and, uh, it was just so, uh, it's nice because it's kind of like getting to experience it like you guys might as the listeners might. But anyway, um, go check out all her, uh, her stuff. Um, her, uh, website is, uh, wife of the party and, uh, I'll put the link to that. I'm not sure exactly what the URL is uh, right now. Again, it's three in the morning. I wish I could convey to you how bad my breath is right now. You can probably feel it. It's probably affecting the sound. Kind of like when you look at the road in the summer and you can see just kind of the, the hot waves of it coming off. I think my breath might be distorting. Not only the sound on your end, but the time-space continuum, the fabric of the universe. That's how bad my breath is right now. Anyway, I don't have any surveys for uh, this week. Um, I don't need to tell you why. I don't need to tell you why. Look at me growing. Not ha- Not taking care of everybody taking care of myself, being a lazy, worthless piece of shit. Ah, that, that, that one slipped through. That one slipped through. I'm thankful for a lot of things, to be serious. I am, um, I've said it many times, but can I ever say it too much? I'm thankful for the gift of human connection in my support groups, through you, the listeners, through the surveys where you share your lives, the surveys that I didn't do this week because I'm a terrible human being. I don't even deserve turkey. You know what? I'm so bad. Turkey should really be eating me tomorrow. That's. I'm going to see if I can set that in motion. I don't know what it's going to look like, but there's going to be a musket and some tears and some very, very confused dinner guests. But one very happy turkey. That might be going a little too far. Um, I am thankful for the little bit of rain that we're getting right now in Los Angeles. Is it just uh, was lightly raining? I hope it doesn't rain too much because with all the forest fires, then you risk the mudslides. If you guys ever want to see what the apocalypse looks like, Come to California. Come to Southern California. And um, yes, uh, it's apocalyptic, but there's a lot of attractive people and some really cool food fusion that people are doing. And uh, you might just bump into somebody from the real housewives of wherever the fuck. That's the next one I think they should do. The real housewives of who gives a fuck. (laughs) And it's just a blank screen. (laughs) 
Um, why am I avoiding being serious? Because I'm afraid, maybe, in this moment, that I'm going to seem contrived, that I'm trying to force some type of sentimentality. And so just as I start to feel it come up, I pull back, which is essentially what the first 40 years of my life was like, uh, was keep myself safe by making people laugh. And who knew that wasn't, uh, that wasn't a recipe for a great life, is to go through it with a single weapon, a single tool that you will try to apply to every situation in your life. But I go to it when I start to get a little uncomfortable or that mean voice in my head starts to tell me, here's what those people that are listening are thinking about you right now. Mean DJ voice. He's coming over Thanksgiving. Those of you that have not met him, he is uh, he's staying with me. He's actually in the guest room. But, um, oh God, here he comes. What's going on, piece of shit? He used to be a DJ in the Quad Cities. Uh, nobody. I rocked the Quad Cities. And your show is fucking lame. Right now, Bachman Turner Overdrive. Can you leave me alone? After that, we're gonna hear little foreigner. Paul, you're a terrible human being. Some people out there are not fans of a mean DJ voice, even though they may identify with the dynamic of the mean voice in our heads. They're incredibly annoyed by it. And to you, I say, happy Thanksgiving. Look at me, turn on the other cheek, because I'm a bigger man than you. That's what I want you to take out of this show. The previous 116 minutes, throw it out the window. I want you to eat Actually, you will have eaten Thanksgiving by the time you hear this because I put it up Friday morning. The next meal you eat after Thanksgiving, I want you to eat it and I want you to to think to yourself, do I deserve to eat? Because I've been so judgmental towards Paul. And then I want you to skip your next, next meal. How do I get off this ship? How do I wrap this up? I could I could do uh, some rhythmic gymnastics, but I only have one arm, as I said. Surgery eight days ago, my arm's in a sling. Um, I am getting used to eating with my left hand, which is a shocker. It was, the, the first four days was, uh, like when you would see a movie where somebody's in a nursing home and they're on the last day that they are able to feed themselves. That's what the utensil looked like coming up to my face. Um, <laughs> let's put it this way. I was not eating any peas. And now I can get up there smoothly and I don't even think about it. I, I'm embarrassed that I said uh, I'm not even, uh, I don't even know what it was that I said. I'm going to go back to bed. The important thing is that this is done now. I can relax. 
I can get back in bed and I can worry about something completely different. I hope you got something out of this. I hope you were able to tolerate uh, all of the stuff I did outside of the interview in my fugue state, my one-armed fugue state. And I hope you remember, honestly, that, that you are, uh, you're not alone. And I'm sure many of you are listening to this probably while you go for a walk because you are otherwise going to punch your uncle in the face. So instead of punching him, take a deep breath. Remember you're not alone. We can't change other people. All we can do is change our reaction to them or avoid them or punch them. Fuck it. Go back in and punch them. (laughs) That's enough out of me. You're not alone, and thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.